Let's pray. Lord God, it's uh, time in our service to proclaim the gospel, to preach. And Lord God, it's such a weird thing to be a preacher because I can really do nothing. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would inhabit all of us, that, Lord, you would impart meaning to my heart and to our hearts, everyone in this room. Holy Spirit, you can do things that no person can do. So would you open our hearts now and help us, Lord God, to believe. I'm not sure we can really understand, but at least now, but through your Spirit, you can help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our second week in the Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words, I'm, hey, I'm reading aloud right now. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, that would be you, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. <laughs> That's kind of an incredible statement, right? Ruler, I mean, is John dreaming? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, or as some versions have it, made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, look, he is coming with the clouds, not will be, is, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Do you notice John is in the tribulation? and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and look, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Do you actually believe he had seven stars in his hand? Do you actually believe that the seven churches are seven lampstands? And a sword could actually like come out of a, a guy's mouth, and Jesus is, is the ruler of the kings of the earth? Or is it like a metaphor? Or maybe just a dream? I mean, John is exiled on a desert island called Patmos, you know, and maybe he's hallucinating. Maybe it's just, just, a, just a dream. Some would argue that all belief in the supernatural is just that. It's, it's a dream. One morning in the paper, I read an article on people's belief in the paranormal. That is uh, belief in things that we cannot comprehend or isolate in some laboratory somewhere. They interviewed this Professor Baker who said this, Modern Americans aren't so different than primitive humans who thought that when lightning struck, it was God throwing thunderbolts. So many things about the world and nature are absolutely mysterious to them. The desire to find supernatural explanations for natural events is still with us and will be until more people get good, basic, scientific educations. See, Professor Baker thinks that science can explain lightning and thunder and, and light and wonder and maybe, maybe me. The article went on to say how important it is for superstitious people and, you know, religious people to get a good basic scientific education. Well, I have a pretty good basic scientific education, bachelor's from CU and G. I love, I love science. It's the study of what can be learned through the scientific method. The scientific method verifies hypotheses related to cause and effect that can be repeated in a controlled environment, tested by repetition in a controlled environment. It studies this world of space and time. Some of you know Mark Rinke, right? You know Mark, Didi's husband, Mark? When I was in high school, he was the older cool guy that would come and speak at our youth group. I mean, it's hard to believe now, but it's true. He, that's what he was. And I remember one day, well, one day he, he came to the youth group. He shared that he had conclusively disproved the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ using the latest cutting-edge scientific methodologies. He, he explained what he had done. He had obtained a, a whole bunch of laboratory mice from Colorado State University. 
He then established a controlled environment uh, that looked uh, very similar to ancient Jerusalem along about 33 AD. He then took some of the laboratory mice and he swore them into the ancient office of the Roman Praetorian Guard. He designated one of the mice the Herod mouse and, and another mouse the Caiaphas mouse and then Pontius Pilate the, the mouse. Another group of mice he carefully circumcised according to the practices of the ancient Torah. He dressed many of these mice in little robes simulating the garb of the Pharisees. But then he took 12 of these mice and fed them on a diet of bread and wine. And then he took one very special mouse, a beloved mouse, and nailed it to a tree. This mouse had previously been designated the Jesus mouse. Upon death, he then took the Jesus mouse to a small papier-mâché tomb, laid the body inside, rolled a great stone relative to a mouse in front of the tomb. Early on the morning of the third day, Mark returned with great anticipation and some spices. And the stone had not been rolled away. And the Jesus mouse was still dead. There you have it. Sorry to destroy your faith. But you know, I, I know you, I know you, you may be thinking, well, Peter, that's, that's just stupid. Well, well, it is stupid. But it's no more stupid than any of the scientific arguments that have been advanced in the 20th century and the start of the 21st century against the existence of anything supernatural or, or even God, stupid. And yet, I think we've swallowed them. We modern people have swallowed them hook, line, and sinker. Even Christians have come to believe, even Christians, that the only things that are truly real are things that can be demonstrated with the scientific method. That is, hypotheses that can be tested in a controlled environment. Satan took Jesus to the top of the temple. And he said, let's, let's, let's run a little test. Let's test a hypothesis. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, and we'll see if the angels will come and bear you up. And Jesus said, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. Since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, folks have argued that the only things that you can believe are things that can be put to the test. Of course, that belief is not something that can be put to the test, that the only things you can believe are things that can be put to, to the test, and yet people believe that belief, and Satan likes that, for that belief means that we cannot believe in God. For in Deuteronomy, God says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Why? Why? I suppose it might be because it, it's a little arrogant to assume that God is a rat or a lab rat. Arrogant and rather stupid, for if God were to submit to our test and act like a rat, well, we wouldn't believe that God was in fact God. And what would we do? Well, we'd probably crucify him. And if he rose from the dead, we probably still wouldn't believe because an empty tomb is no longer, well, that's no longer a controlled environment. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. As an explanation of the world, as an explanation of the world, materialism has a sort of insane simplicity. 
it has just the quality of the madman's argument. We have at once the sense of it covering everything and, then, and the sense of it leaving everything out. The materialist understands everything and everything does not seem worth understanding. And so we modern people, we have billions and billions and billions of facts, but we don't know what any of them mean. That's because meaning itself, you see, can't be proven by the scientific method. Nothing truly good, beautiful, reasonable, and right can be proven by the scientific method. Why? Well, truth, goodness, beauty, righteousness, reason can't be proven by the scientific method. Each of them, when you analyze it, is like an uncaused cause. Necessary beingness, realities that cannot be proven in a lab but only encountered somehow and believed. You know, even the scientific method can't be proven by the scientific method. Can't be proven, only believed, like, well, like a religion. And I think most scientists, real scientists, I think most scientists know this. And if they don't, they haven't been paying attention to science. You know this, I think, but in the last century, science has said some absolutely incredible things. Physicists have said some absolutely incredible things. They, they, they've said, well, actually, it turns out that the universe seems to have had a beginning, a big bang. They now argue that about 14 billion years ago, all of space and time, that's all of cause and effect, just sprang into existence. 14 billion years from our perspective, but six days from another perspective, like the perspective of a perhaps creator. But even weirder, there is no natural law at the point of the Big Bang. It's all cause and effect in time. All space and time, and likewise all cause and effect, sprang into existence at that point of the Big Bang, which means that all nature has a supernatural explanation, Dr. Baker. All causes have an uncaused cause. No space, no time, no science beyond, before, outside of the Big Bang. Then what? Maybe not a what, but a who. Because check this out. Science has demonstrated that on the subatomic level, uh, the quantum state of all matter mysteriously depends upon someone observing it. That's so weird. Not a what, but a who. It's as if matter doesn't really matter, but you do. It's as if matter is the dream and you're the dreamer. It's as if you are an imperfect image of the perfect creator who creates all things with his logos, his reason, his thoughts, his word. It's as if he dreams you into existence. And now he's inviting you to dream him into your existence. Well, anyway, science itself has shown that space and time are something like a dream. It was almost 100 years ago that Albert Einstein said, reality is an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. He also said imagination is more important than knowledge, as if faith is the foundation of all fact. 
See, I think physicists are, are, are saying things like dreams are more solid than matter, as if all of physics is somehow a dream, as if this whole world is a dream, as if this whole world is, is your dream. Well, that's kind of an enticing thought and a terrifying thought, and enticing for then you're like God and, and terrifying for then there is no God and no one else but you, a lonely dreamer. Well, anyway, just what if, what if, what if your world is a dream? What if? I mean, you say, well, okay, um, Peter doesn't, doesn't seem like a dream. Well, do you remember how you got here? <laughs> how your world started? See, maybe, maybe, maybe you're dreaming. Sleep. Our mind can do almost anything. Such as? Well, imagine you're designing a building, right? You consciously create each aspect. But sometimes it feels like it's almost creating itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah like I'm discovering it. Genuine inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in a dream, our mind continuously does this. We create and perceive our world simultaneously, and our mind does this so well that we don't even know what's happening. Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the, uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming. You're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. Full of glass hurts like hell when you're in it. it feels real. Well, that's just a movie. <laughs> but what if? I mean, what if you're dreaming right now? What if you're dreaming? How, how would you know? How could you tell? And if you are dreaming, if in fact you are dreaming right now, then waking from this dream would be downright apocalyptic. I mean, we don't think of it that way when we're fully awake. For uh, the dream world seems unreal in, in, in the light of, of the real. We don't think of it as apocalyptic when we're fully awake uh, because our dreams don't seem so real, but it does seem rather real while you're still dreaming, right? 
Think about it. The sky rolls up. The stars fall from the sky. Everything in the dream world vanishes as you wake from a dream. If you wake a person too quickly from a dream, you can give them a heart attack. Do you notice that here at the start of the Revelation, John fell down as though dead until Jesus touched him and said, fear not. So you see, maybe John wasn't dreaming when he had the revelation. Maybe he was waking up. Well, the loving thing to do when waking a person from a dream is to wake them up slowly. In the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio had entered Ellen Page's dream through some funky, weird technology. But did you notice that he told her what was coming? Her coffee cup starts to shake. Stay calm. An apocalypse is coming. You do that for your kids. You whisper in their ear, sweetheart, hey, buddy, buddy, you're, you're having a dream. You're having a dream. Wake up. It's a bad dream, but I'm not a bad dream. To the dreamer in his dream, there's this gradual realization that the whisper in his ear can't be explained by the dream. And yet for a while, it's like the whisper is part of the dream an incongruent part of the dream. So how do you know that you're dreaming? Well, have you ever had a dream in which you were dreaming something and that something, that dream in your dream was more real than the dream? Something you couldn't dream into submission in your dream? I mean, like maybe you were dreaming that you were going to the bathroom and then you woke up and realized that you were! happens, you know, to kids quite often. Have you ever dreamt that you were dreaming, but the dream in your dream was actually a person in the waking world trying to wake you up? When a man dreams his own dream, he is the sport of his dream, wrote George MacDonald. When another gives it to him, the other is able to fulfill it. When, when we're waking from a dream, the thing that wakes us is a reality that won't fit in our, our dream. My, my dreams can all be explained by me. I'm the sport of my dreams. I'm the center of my dreams. I'm the source of my dreams. So, yeah, some of them are, are really weird, but they all, they all have their source in, in me. They all emanate from me. It's all about me. But when someone or something wakes me, my mind can't make that reality from the outside waking world fit into the interior, uh, the interior of, of my own dream world. I can't make uh, the truth fit into my world of illusion. So even though it's truth and reason, at first I experience it as confusion and perhaps even suffering. I suffer reality as I'm waking from my illusion. But if the someone who loves me is waking me from my illusion, waking me from my dreams, like I said, they'll first try to enter my dreams like a whisper. Peter, it's time to get up. I love you, and I'm making waffles. So this is my question. Are there things in this world that don't fit in this world? 
things that can't be explained by this world or by you, paradoxes, mysteries, things that you cannot comprehend. Maybe they're real. And this entire world is a dream. Maybe it's somebody whispering in your ear, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and I will give you light. That's actually Ephesians 5.14. And maybe the Word of God is whispering in your ear, stay calm. You are about to experience an apocalypse, but I'm making waffles, roast lamb, and red wine, and a feast you can barely even begin to imagine. About those people who believe God is actually somehow behind thunder, Professor Baker said, so many things about the world and nature are absolutely mysterious to them. Maybe that's because they're waking up. And Professor Baker is entirely enchanted by his own dreams. No mystery, no paradox, no no meaning, no truth, no beauty, no wonder, nobody else but him, because he's asleep. John records in his gospel that at one point in Jesus' ministry, after he prayed, Father, glorify your name, a voice boomed from the sky saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And some standing there said, it thundered. And others said, no, 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 that was more than thunder. So who was dreaming? Who was awake? What I'm saying is maybe Jesus really did appear to John. Maybe Jesus really does have a sharp two-edged sword that emanates from his mouth. Maybe he really does have seven stars in his hands. Maybe this little seemingly inconsequential church of ours is a lampstand. Maybe the time is at hand. Maybe the kingdom really is at hand. Maybe it's not just a metaphor. But this entire world is the metaphor. Maybe the revelation is not just a metaphor, and the mystery, paradox, and wonder don't mean that it's less real than this world, but it's more real than this world. In 1884, a preacher and schoolmaster named Edwin Abbott published a book called Flatland, a romance in many dimensions. I, I never read the book, but I saw the movie. School teachers still use it to teach their students about geometry, but Edwin Abbott also wrote it to teach people about God. The book is about a land called Flatland, an entirely two-dimensional world, so that beings in Flatland can only perceive and experience and understand two dimensions. But one of the beings in Flatland has a revelation of the third dimension. For a few minutes, he's lifted out of that two-dimensional world, and he experiences three dimensions. When he goes back to Flatland, he tries to explain what he saw. Everyone says, you're nuts. You're dreaming. Now, every few years, I've included this in a sermon, and I would include it in every sermon if I thought that you'd tolerate it, but we especially need it for the revelation. So pay attention, okay? If we were flatlanders, uh, living in flatland, like this two-dimensional poster board, all we could perceive would be two-dimensional objects, like circles and squares and, and rectangles, maybe triangles, more, more circles. 
But we couldn't perceive three-dimensional objects like this sphere, also called a basketball. But now if this sphere were to, well, there's a bump in the sphere. If this sphere needs air, if, there, if this sphere were to pass through flatland, what would we see? Well, we'd see a circle, right? And what might we call the event? I think we might call the event a miracle. Why? Because all of a sudden we'd see a point appear out of nowhere, and then it would grow into a circle, and then a bigger circle, and a bigger circle, and then the circle would shrink back again, and then the, the point would uh, disappear. We call it a miracle. But now suppose that three-dimensional objects intersected flatland all the time. I mean, like the sphere just intersected flatland and stayed there. Uh, uh, maybe a cube intersected flatland and just stayed there. A cylinder intersected flatland and just stayed, just stayed, just stayed there. What would that mean? It would mean that we would be surrounded by uh, miracles all the time and, and not even know it. Except, except for the one that had the revelation. The one that received the revelation would say things like, that's not just any old square, that's a cube. And we'd all say, that's nuts, you're dreaming, impossible, uh, that's, that's ridiculous. We might say, hey, look, a church, and he would say, well, it's actually a lampstand. We might say, those worshipers sure are singing loud, and he might say, the great harlot has fallen, and the new Jerusalem is coming down, adorned like a bride for her husband, and, and we'd say, well, yeah, whatever. We might say, hey, Donald Trump, look, Donald Trump is reading the Bible, imagine that, and he would say, behold, a white horse, and he that sits upon it is faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His name, the word of God, and look, the birds of the air are coming to feed Feed on the flesh of the kings. And we'd say, right, whatever, and whisper to each other, he's dreaming. We might say, hey, look, a poor baby in a manger, and he'd start singing with the angels. We might say, hey, look, a, a naked criminal hanging on a tree. And he would bow in adoration before the Lamb of God standing upon his throne. We might say, hey, look, junior high kids are handing out sandwiches to beggars in the park. And he joined them, thrilled that he too could be part of serving the King of Kings. We might say, I'm dying. And he would say, no, 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 no. At last, you're waking up. His world would be full of miracle and meaning. He couldn't explain it to us, but he would proclaim it to us, a paradox, a, a paradox. I, I, imagine if a cylinder intersected flatland this way. Well, what would they see? A circle, right? Imagine if that very same cylinder intersected flatland this way. What would they see? They'd see a rectangle. What is a cylinder? An infinite number of rectangles that are also an infinite number of circles. In Flatland, they would say inconceivable, impossible. But it would be possible. It would be true. What if I took three fingers and I jammed them into Flatland? And I said, behold, Flatland, I am three and yet one. I am one and three. I am Trinity. 
People in Flatland would say, no way. But I might say something like, Yahweh, Yahweh. (laughs) You know, the Bible says that you were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, and yet you were chosen to freely choose God in freedom. I mean, all of that is like a paradox in my mind, in the three and a half dimensions of my mind, but it's true. In fact, let's suppose that time is one of the dimensions of Flatland, okay? And Einstein said we live in space-time, really four dimensions. I say three and a half because the fourth dimension, we can only travel one direction, in which physicists are confused about that. But we live in three. Imagine that time is one of the dimensions of Flatland, okay? And I stood outside of Flatland, and I said, Behold, Flatland, my kingdom is at hand. Would that be true? Well, it would be true at every point on the timeline in Flatland. My time is at hand. Let's suppose that I took Flatland and somehow I was able to take this two-dimensional plane and put it inside my body. And the guy who had the revelation in Flatland, he might say something like, in Peter we live and move and have our being. Behold, he is not far from each one of us. And the Flatlanders say, I don't, I, don't even, I don't even think there is such a thing as, as Peter. Or suppose, let's suppose that I had somehow the ability to enter Flatland as a person in Flatland. Let's suppose that I entered Flatland along about 33 AD and stood in front of the Sanhedrin and said, "Um, um, um, Behold, from this day forward, you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven, and all eyes, all eyes will see me. And then I said, Behold, I come. And I just jammed myself into Flatland. My coming... My parousia, my arrival, would be one event in reality, but experience at all these separate points on the timeline. 33 A.D., 70 A.D., the day Jerusalem falls, February 18, 1546, the day Martin Luther died, March 8, 2004, the day my dad died, and some date in the future, the day you die or the day I die. Jesus is the end, and he comes for each of us at death, which will be within one generation of right now. One apocalypse at a million points in history such that we'll all be caught up in the air together to meet him. The apocalypse. He is coming on the clouds of heaven, and all eyes will see him, and you will see him. And the sky will roll up, and the stars will fall. He is coming on the clouds of heaven. But wouldn't it be nice if somehow he could come now like like a whisper? Like a whisper in your soul or a kiss on the cheek. And you see, maybe he is. For do you encounter things in our world that cannot be explained by our world and don't submit to scientific analysis in these three and a half dimensions? Paradox, mystery, unexplained phenomenon. How about truth? How do you prove truth is true? How about truth, goodness, beauty, life, love, 
reason. How about your wife? That's an unexplained phenomenon. Jesus said, I am the truth. That means the truth is Jesus. Perhaps every time you long for the truth, you're hearing the truth whisper into your soul. Wouldn't you like to wake up? Jesus said, God alone is good. If your sandwich is good, maybe God is whispering through your sandwich, this is just a taste. Wouldn't you like to wake up and meet me? God is love, and so real love is God. So when your wife gives you a kiss, God is also giving you a kiss, and maybe beginning to, to, to wake you up. Sometimes we say things like this, where is God? Where is he? Where is he? I need a sign. Do you suffer? If you suffer, you suffer the loss of control. A dream is all under your control. So when you suffer the loss of control, maybe someone's starting to wake you up. I'm trying to say that we need to stop taking these three and a half dimensions so seriously and start taking the whispers seriously. Or maybe they're taking us seriously. That's a better way to think about it. But stop taking this world so seriously. You know, when I was a child, I had a hard time distinguishing my dream world from the waking world. So I remember I had this dream one time about this tornado, a Chinese tornado that had a Japanese Komodo and a pointed hat. And I remember it just totally freaked me up. I woke up just totally terrified, sobbing, crying. A few nights ago, I had a dream that I was in a North Korean prison awaiting death. And the guard decided to shave my, not shave them, just trim them because they were too bushy. I'm awaiting death, but in the dream I think, well, this is absurd. This is absurd. And I just didn't take it seriously. The older I get, the more I, I, I listen to the whispers from the waking world. The older I get, the more I sense that this world is absurd. And so I need to stop taking these three and a half dimensions so seriously because I'm about to wake up. Ironically, it's evangelical Christians who often take space and time so seriously. We've been so busy trying to make sense of the Bible in these three and a half dimensions that we forgot that it testifies to the one who made all the dimensions. So we worry about the great tribulation and when it will be. And if we're prepared with canned goods and shotguns and armies. But we don't stop to ask, what does it mean? We don't notice that Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The suffering servant has overcome the world. Uh, not people with canned goods and shotguns and, and armies. Love in flesh has overcome the world. A slaughtered lamb is standing on the throne. The way, the truth, and the life have, has, have overcome the three and a half dimensions of this fallen world. The meaning of God has overcome uh, the meaninglessness of this existence. Jesus is what God means. And Jesus is the meaning. Right here in chapter 1, Jesus reveals the meaning of the stars. Did you notice that? And right here in chapter 1, Jesus revealed the meaning of the lampstands. John, I'm telling you, y'all are a lampstand, and I'm the light. 
We're going to have to trust Jesus to reveal His meaning in the rest of this book and in the rest of space and time and in the rest of our space and time. Because you see, without Him, at best, you're just a square, just a square in flatland. Without love and truth living in you, you have no depth, but Jesus is the meaning. He's the meaning of you. Jesus is God's dream given to you. You must dream God's dreams in order to stop dreaming. And one day you will see that they aren't just dreams. God's dreams are reality. So how can we know anything truly real? This is, a, this is a philosophical question, a theological question, also a very practical question. How can we know anything truly real? Well, only by divine revelation. And when it happens, it looks like worship. Did you notice that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? The Lord's Day probably refers to Sunday, the first day of the week. Well, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when he receives the revelation. When he received the revelation, he's in the Spirit. So receiving the revelation was not being in the Spirit. So what is it to be in the Spirit? Well, I think it, it, it must be worship. Science was born out of worship, and I truly, sincerely, I just, I love science, but worship is the opposite of the scientific method. It's not conquest. It's submission. Remember, there is an epistemology of technology. That's the scientific method. It's great for knowing things confined to three and a half dimensions, and there is an epistemology of worship. You can know things by taking knowledge of life like fruit from a tree, or you can know because you've been known by the life and Jesus is the life. In experiments, uh, scientists text, test things. The scientists test things in order to comprehend things. In worship, God tests us like gold refined by fire. God tests us, and He comprehends us. He knows us and gives us life. Worship God, I'm saying. Worship God in Christ Jesus and surrender to the dreams that He gives you. Worship is allowing Jesus to be your vision. Worship is the revelation of Jesus. So, we do some worshiping here. Have you ever felt love in worship? John wrote, he who loves is born of God and knows God. You see, see that love is more than you know. And you are far more than you know. You're not just a square, but, but a cube with real depth. As we've worshiped, have you ever hoped you know, we sing these songs, and maybe for a moment you hoped for God's glory. Like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Scripture claims that Christ in you is the hope of glory. So the hope of glory in you is Christ in you, preparing you to wake up. Have you ever sensed a little faith in, in you? Paul prayed that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Faith is much more than you know. And unless you have the faith of Christ, you cannot wake up. For without faith, waking up would give you a heart attack. <laughs> I really believe that. It would reduce you to dust and ashes, and God would have to start over again. 
faith, hope, and love. You've encountered all three. And the three are one. And, and so I hope, you, I hope you see that we don't have to have an experience like John had on the island of Patmos. Just worship and pay attention to what dreams may come. And God has already given you a dream. Probably a whole lot of dreams. He's given to you every day, but He's given you the revelation. It only seems like a dream because this world is a dream. I should say this fallen world. And that's what John means when he refers to the world. Uh, not, not like the trees and the bushes so much as the systems in which we live. But, but I should say this fallen world is a dream. It's our dream. It's our dream. I think the devil tempted us with a dream. You can take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and make yourself in the image of God. He tempted us with a dream of control. Control is our dream. And so we took the life of the good from the tree in the Garden of Eden. Just as we took the life of Christ from the tree in the garden on Calvary, we dreamed that we were God. And God were a rat, a lab rat. We dreamed that the good was simply a thing to be taken and consumed. We dreamed that the truth could be twisted and used for our own ends. We, we dreamed that the life was our own private possession. My life, my, my life. We dreamed that we were God and crucified God, crucified the way, the truth, the life, the light, the love, the good, the reason. We forgot how we got here in the first place, for we dreamed the dream that we were our own creators. We dreamed an evil dream, crucified Christ, and everything died. But you see, I think that means that death is just our dream. And now the life is waking us up. And this is how he does it. On that night, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it and eat it. Put it in you. <laughs> and in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Put it in you. Faith, hope, and love in you are Christ rising from the dead in you and gently waking you up. He has let us dream for a time and for his own reasons, but now he has entered our dreams and he is waking us up. We've each dreamed that we were God and God was dead, but all along, God has been dreaming us. We're not the dreamer, but the dream. You're God's dream. Dreaming your own dreams for a time, for He's let you, but you are God's dreams. Dreaming your, your own dreams, but an apocalypse is coming. <laughs> From the perspective of our self-centered dreams, 
it looks like this. From the perspective of reality, it looks something more like this. And this is the apocalypse now. Dark cups of wine, light cups of juice. They are both the love of God poured out for you. So sin is dreaming the dream of your own sovereignty, that you are your own creator. And Jesus is God's dream, the dream of the creator. He's the perfected Adam. He is somehow who you most truly are. But we dreamed a dream that we are our own creator, and the dream has turned into a nightmare. And so we may ask, God, why did you let us dream our own dreams? <laughs> well, maybe because he wanted to show us that he's the dreamer, <laughs> and his dreams are better than our dreams, and you, in fact, are his dream. And one day all your dreams will agree with his dreams, and that will be reality. Whatever the case, <laughs> don't take this world so seriously. Listen for the whispers, and remember that you are God's dream. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen?